Hello and welcome to Learning Rewired Flash Insights, a selection of key takeaways from HeadSpring's Learning Rewired podcast. My guest today is Jose Hernandez, author of Broken Business, an authoritative guide to reforming good companies gone bad. Jose, welcome into the studio. Thank you. Thank you for so, inviting me. Jose, you have your roots in forensic accounting. So, you know, really finding where things have gone wrong and <laughs> who've done the bad deeds, et cetera, and, and tracing that back. But your consultancy and your work nowadays is far more in helping organizations who've undergone corporate scandal or difficult governance issues and helping them rehabilitate and, and find their way back to constructive business. Yeah, you know, I um, I was a partner, formerly a partner with PwC and more on the forensics, corporate compliance front. And uh, I found myself about 10 years ago partnering with the former director of the FBI, Louis Free, to help boards of very large organizations that face sort of a once in a lifetime crisis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, usually they're involved in some type of investigation. It's in the public domain. It involves misconduct, potentially all the way to the top of an organization. And then you come in and they say, well, you know, we got lots of lawyers, lots of accountants, a lot of consultants here, and we don't know what to do next. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we help sort of strategize. So we help gather facts. We help frame potential outcomes and potential answers on how to best address this. But the most important and, and, and beautiful part of what, what I do is help them rehabilitate so that what's happened in the past never happens again. Mm. And you bring the forensic skill set, you bring, you know, your human understanding of business. You know, I've had the great pleasure of travel around the world and you understand cultures. And obviously I was born in El Salvador, so I understand war-torn, I understand corruption, I've lived it. Mm. So I come at it in a very human fashion and understanding that organizations, it's really more about humans than it is about technology. Yeah, so what I really love about that is there's this focus on not just the numbers and not just what's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. um, there's a real honing in on what's more than an individual, sometimes an individual, I'm guessing, and sometimes a group of people having made a significant mistake. There's obviously something going on here that is a lot more than just the individual or just at that basic level. I mean, to quote something from your book, which is which I think really sets the tone for this is, he is what we like to call a bad apple, speaking about the individual who's committed the, the ostensible crime. And when things go wrong in a company, senior leaders like to convince themselves and others that the issues boil down to the conduct of a few bad apples or rogue employees. We distance ourselves from them, in inverted commas, and convince ourselves that they are different and not like you and me. But that kind of thinking limits our understanding of the situation, and it leads to inadequate remedies when issues of misconduct are brought to light. What do you mean there, Jose, when you talk about this kind of thinking limits our understanding of the situation? Well, first, um, and we're talking about big corporations with something very significant under criminal investigation. Mm. It is not like you breached the rule one day and you found out the next and mm -hmm. it's all happened in a very short period of time. In fact, if you get caught in any organization stealing, lying or doing something inappropriate with your secretary or with your boss, you'd be fired pretty quickly. Mm. So over a period of time, what we found is that there was a slippery slope where a number of actions by certain individuals were always pushing the boundaries and in some ways forgiven or understood because they were the larger-than-life creatures, mm -hmm. the rainmakers, the untouchables, and these people started to dominate an organization. But what happens over time is that the line for the entire organization starts to shift. And clearly, for example, in a corrupt payment, 
Um, you say, well, I need to make a payment because that's the only way we're going to do business in China or in Pakistan or in Nigeria. Well, you start rationalizing that uh, everyone else is doing it. Or you start saying, well, I'm not doing it, but a third party is doing it for me. And then you start distancing yourself. But what's what's amazing is that uh, in all the cases that I've worked on, surely you can always pinpoint one or two senior individuals that at least drove an institution to to bend the rules. But what's remarkable is that to make a payment to go out, you need a lot of, you need invoices, you need authorizations, you need treasury, you need accounting, you need contracts. So a lot of people are involved. So a lot of people see the warning signs. So that also suggests to you that the warning signs at some point were made known to senior ups in an organization. Just because a person looks different or just because we think, well, oh, that's an outsider, it's sort of, uh, we want to separate ourselves, but it could happen to you and I. And what I say to a lot of folks is the individuals that I've seen that push the boundaries, those rainmakers, are just like you and I, but smarter mm. and more charismatic. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes their charm dangerous. And that's what, in organizations, in some ways, they corrode them from the inside mm-hmm. over a long period of time, pushing those boundaries of business until something turns into a scandal. Mm. Yeah, There's a great phrase you used there, willfully blind. Talk me through a little bit what it means to be willfully blind as well, an individual and in an organizational culture, perhaps. Yeah, so for example, you look at a transaction and uh, you're paying a markup to a third party. Let's say you're operating in uh, Turkmenistan and a third party says, well, look, um, why don't you add a markup of 30% to this invoice? You can say, well, it's a party that I've already vetted. You know, it's a party that's doing business for us. The 30% and maybe because there's some circumstances that may be challenging in the country, whereas you and I may know that the 30% extra on the invoice is going to go to a government official. Mm -hmm. It's a bribe. Mm -hmm. So some people just say, well, I am not doing that. It's not my organization that's bribing that government official. It's some other third party. Mm. The other one is to basically get a report, an investigative report, and says, well, this person approved certain payments. But then you can say, well, did he really know what those payments were for? And then you start excusing people, fully knowing that, suspecting at least, that that person has done wrong. So willfully blind is a way of us rationalizing ourselves away from doing the courageous actions, the things that we need to do mm-hmm. in order to stand up and, and address a problem. Just to kind of read into the subtext of what you're saying, am I hearing that when this, this kind of behavior goes on consistently, there's an organizational culture that develops that supports the ongoing willful blindness and leads to ongoing willful blindness within a, within an organization. Yeah, it supports it or, or maybe it just tolerates it. Tolerate. And then uh, and the more you tolerate, the more you're condoning the conduct, the more you're accepting it, and the more everyone around you says, well, I guess that is normal mm-hmm. in this setting. Mm. I guess that's just the way things are done. Mm-hmm. So you socialize it. Uh, and of course, great experiments in the 60s and 70s, you know, Stanford Prison Experiment, how you know, seemingly well-intended individuals with a set of circumstances under the right pressure can do some terrible things. Mm. So again, and once you see certain conduct, you know, we all want to belong, especially in an organizational context. Mm. One of the fascinating things that I found over my 20 years specializing in this space is people tend to think of corporate misconduct, cases of corruption, and and I'm talking about history, you know, a long history of organizations with great brands as bad apples or bad persons, bad companies that, of course, bad persons and bad companies end up in a crisis. My experience is, and this is why I wrote the book, it's exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. Not one of the corporations that I've actually worked on, maybe I've had too much luck, have been bad corporations. They've been good, solid businesses. It doesn't matter what the industry's been. 
And the people that I've dealt with, even those that were willfully blind, even those that were committing these acts, they were good leaders with some faults, but they were good people that meant well. It seems to me that organizations and businesses are under more pressure than ever to show good governance, uh, to show social investment of a positive kind, mm -hmm. to show uh, respectful, sustainable approaches to environmental engagement, et cetera. These ESG issues are extremely prominent and increasingly so. Do you think companies are under more pressure and will therefore take better measures to prevent these kind of scandals? Or do you think that is actually adding to the pressure in the system that might lead to even elevated or increased numbers of, of scandals and poor governance and poor behavior? I think it could be a combination in both. And if it's more of the latter, it's more dangerous. Mm. Because um, in a business, the capital markets effectively are driving the agendas of board and the agendas of businesses. The capital markets really care about profits and future expectations. You and I look at our pension statement and there's no happiness or ESG rating associated with each investment. You and I measure up or down. Mm -hmm. And if it's down, people are like my parents say, well, they stole money from me when they see their pension portfolio go down. I'm like, no, it's just, you know, the way these things work. But until we have ways of gauging and embedding this more into the way we measure companies, measure and reward things, until we institutionalize good conduct. Look, it wasn't until so long ago, remember 20 years ago, late 1990s, we said, we're going to eradicate corruption, at least in the OECD countries. We're going to make it a criminal offense and so on. This year, we still have some of the largest corruption cases around mm. happening 20 years later in the best of organizations. And it doesn't matter where you're headquartered, whether you're in Brazil or in Scandinavia or in China, it's happening all around. So I think good intentions are a good start. However, if we do not embed this into the incentive system of leaders, into the way we govern organizations, we don't embed it into the strategy component because it's no sense, for example, saying I'm just going to try to offset my carbon footprint when I'm you know, building up huge dams. And, and, and you know, I think you need to figure out how you're going to balance these things as part of strategy rather than as an add-on perk. And you have to have the checks and balance of that. So changing the system as you say, I mean, that's a steep hill to climb. And, and we could be talking about different systems there, multiple systems, the system within the organization, the, the system within the industry, also the broader economics and just mm -hmm. the globalized state that we live in. Obviously, organizations can only really, well, they have varying degrees of impact depending on where we, we mm -hmm. place that systemic view. As an organization, if you're the leader of an organization and you take on the view that we're always going to be dealing with humans, humans under pressure make mistakes, mm -hmm. This is not about bad apples. It's about particular humans in particular circumstances mm -hmm. making poor decisions. What do you see as kind of steps that leaders can take to ensure that that doesn't happen in the organization, or at least that they can mitigate the risk of that happening in the organization on a regular basis? I think that uh, CEOs and leaders need to put themselves out there. Mm -hmm. They need to simple things like having open letters, open door policies, going to the shop floor, going to the street, talking to customers, and promoting a speak-up environment where people can come to you with issues. And, you know, there's a certain type of leader that says, if I get a certain sense of problems, that means I have a problem because I expect my underlings to be dealing with those things. But in fact, you want problems to defy gravity. You want problems to go up. You want to know as a board of directors, as a CEO, as a leadership team, what are my issues? What are my allegations of misconduct? Where do we go wrong? Because only by understanding that can you actually know what's really going on in an organization and, and fix it. And also saying to people, look, it's excusable to make a mistake. If you make a mistake twice, then we have another conversation. Mm -hmm. But if you hide a mistake, then you have no room in this organization. Mm -hmm. Because then you can start creating a real problem that affects more than an individual and affects the corporation. 
And any business that thinks that uh, I only get five whistleblower calls a year, so therefore I'm a good business, is a business in delusion. Mm -hmm. So understanding and creating an environment where these things rise to the top so you have transparency, that's one aspect, proactive, that you can do. The second one is just in terms of the role of corporations in society. There's been a dramatic shift. And uh, maybe because there's low levels of trust in democratic institutions, low levels of trust in corporations, low levels of trust in the accounting profession, for example. I mean, we're missing trust, yet we're all being summoned to collectively address these once-in-a-generation set of challenges like climate change, inequality, and corruption. How are we going to do that with this vacuum of trust? Mm -hmm. So I think it's to for CEOs just to take that next step to connect an organization to its purpose, to connect the organization to sustainable development goals and broaden the lines of responsibility. It's not just saying my lines of responsibilities are where my legal walls begin and end, but also looking at my supply chain, my distribution, and being accountable and not changing the world in one with one stroke, but really just helping people become more human, more understanding, and getting your shareholders and your board members, your leadership and your company aligned to that, that's tough work. Mm -hmm. But if you can do it, you know, it is the, you know, what's going to keep the business sustainable because you're not just working on the customers today, but you're really focusing on, you know, 10, 20, 50 years down the line. Am I hearing you say that this is not about flowery ideologies and hugging trees and, you know, shaking hands and being all about peace, love and unity. This is just basic good business. If you really want to have a sustainable, strong business in the long term, becoming committed to these kind of goals and finding a purpose that goes beyond just profit is fundamentally important and necessary. Yeah, critical. And you and I think you've nailed it right. The intellectual rationale is really easy here, but it's just a matter of executing it in a large organization and being able to stay with it. And know that even though your returns from quarter to quarter may not be there over this medium and long term, it's just simply the right thing to do. Jose, thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to Flash Insights, a collection of key takeaways from guests on Headspring's Learning Rewired podcast. For full episodes from Learning Rewired, as well as access to other episodes of Flash Insights, please subscribe to the Learning Rewired podcast. podcast.